0: Hello! And welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, I am joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Be Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how are you doing? I was I was gratified to see you cited in the article that we read for today's podcast. Congrats! I,
1: I was gratified to see me cited in the article <laughs> that we read for today. That was a very that was a very nice surprise. Thank you.
0: It's always <laughs> gratifying to see yourself. How cited gratifying! In indeed, indeed. And we are joined by Harvey Young. Um, of boston university harvey uh what's it like out there how, how, are, how are your spirits how's the weather give us a spirits and weather update
2: it, it rains a lot in the northeast that's my big you know discovery over the last few months is that nor'easters happen and and water falls from the sky but the upside is when it, when it's not raining it's pretty it's pretty the leaves are turning colors it's nice to be outside so you know it's good you know that's the end.
0: You know, and I, I, that was pretty much a weather report, but I can detect that your spirits are good. (laughs) You're, you're, you're grounded. You're feeling, feeling all right. Life is good. On this Monday morning. Um, So today we have three really interesting topics to talk about. Uh, We all read Bess Rowan's article, Undigested Reading, Rethinking Stage Directions Through Affect, which is in the new September 2018 Theater Journal. We read um, uh, Noe Montez's very detailed report on the state of the field, which he gave at the Symposium of Doctoral Programs in Theater and Performance Studies held at Tufts at the beginning of the month. We took a peek at the... 2018-2019 job market in theater and performance studies. We'll talk about the dynamics going on in there. Um, And then we're going to talk also about uh, the digital conference model. Um, This is really a model that I made up in my head, but I'm going to propose that um, one of the major conferences in our field should shift to online meetings for ecological and economic reasons. And we'll talk about what that would mean if if we did it. Before we get to those topics, we've got some important news items to relate. Um, Intosaki Shange, black feminist poet, novelist, playwright, author of For Colored Girls, Guggenheim Fellow, Obie Award winner, just an iconic figure in American theater, passed away on October 28th. She was 70. There's a terrific uh, remembrance for Shanghai written by Rebecca Carroll in The Nation, and several other um, tribute pieces, which I will say as an aside that Brian Herrera, friend of the podcast, has compiled in his Theater Click newsletter, which is just an amazing resource that Brian puts together, and he has provided links to some great, um, writing about Shange's career. Um, but she passed away and she is remembered fondly. Um, two days after that, um, Maria Irene Fornes died at age 88. Um, Fornez was a guiding light in avant-garde New York theater in the 1960s and seventies. And for the rest of her career, multi obie award winner for works, including Promenade and the successful life of three. Um, she was known also for her directing and, and for being an, Excellent teaching of a teacher of playwriting. Um, her work, as we mentioned in, in, I think, the last episode, has been honored recently this year um, uh, in a documentary called "The Rest I Make Up." Um, in a symposium held at Princeton, at a marathon staging of her works at the Public Theater. So, um, we wanted to just uh, recognize uh, Fornes' passing as well. A couple of really important uh, artists have have left us in uh, in this month very recently. Um, we also wanted to uh, uh, touch in on the current state of Astor's uh, conference for this year. The executive committee voted to defer action on the 2018 conference on Friday. Um, they are postponing their decision until this Wednesday, which is uh, two days from the time of this recording. Um, this the, the 2018 conference has been in suspense due to a nationwide strike of workers at the Marriott hotel chains, which includes the Weston San Diego Gaslamp Quarter, where the conference is scheduled to be held or was originally scheduled to be held. Um, I'm editorializing a little bit here on behalf of myself, but I will say that ASTOR leadership was wise and just in deciding not to hold the conference at a hotel where workers are striking for living wages and better working conditions. Um, But the outcome as of the time of this recording is unknown. Um, So according to an announcement by uh, Daphne Lay, ASTOR president, the organization is looking for alternative union hotels in the area with an equal or lesser room rate. Certain minimum requirements for hosting the meeting. and if that can't be found by Wednesday, um, the announcement explains the the conference will be canceled. So I think we'll have more to say about this situation in our third segment, which is about um, digital conference models and what's gained or lost by um, in organizing scholarly communication online instead of in person. Um, but that's the current state of the Astro conference as of the time of this recording. And I, I will say I'm, I'm proud of the Astro leadership on this. I know it's a very tough situation for them. Um, I would not cross a picket line, I'm sure, A large contingent of the membership would not do that either. So I think this is the right move. And um, wishing them the best as they make a, a tough final decision. So we read Bess Rowan's article on what she calls affective stage directions. Um, This is in the new TJ. Um, It's a fascinating exploration into a fascinating topic, which is all of the writing in a play that is not dialogue and the sort of uh, different kinds of interpretive um, uh, arenas that that writing um, exposes. Sarah, do you want to uh, just give us a little bit of a synopsis of this article and tell us um, some, some questions that it brought up in your mind?
1: Happily. So Rowan divides this essay into into really two kind of big chunks. Um, The first is is an incredibly helpful and very detailed uh, account of prior writing on uh, critical writing on stage directions and kind of traces it through the way in which different authors have engaged or not, you know, robustly with with this question of what do you do with this extra kind of text? And she frames all of this in response to a, a kind of critical um, and, and somewhat troubling or, you know, questionable or, you know, confusing stage direction from Sarah Rules um, in The Next Room or The Vibrator play um, about essentially how a performer would stage a historically... Uh, a historically accurate or historically situated female orgasm on stage, right, and with and moving it away from cliche and the way she rule opens up that space, and so Rowan takes that that stage direction um, from that from the rule play as the kind of critical question of what do we do with this and what makes this stage direction different from other stage directions, and then she takes us through a, a kind of history of of critical analysis um, of this. Rather overlooked genre right of of dramatic writing right um literally overlooked in some cases uh in the you know as we think about like the play on stage, and then in the second uh, uh, part of the of the essay, Rowan looks to affect theory as a way of understanding and differentiating different kinds of stage directions, so thinking about. You know, what what is unusual or interesting about that rule stage direction and what what other kinds of stage directions might go along with it? And what are the trends in 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 stage directions um, and how might they appear and function differently in different kinds of of drama? Um, and and I just I think she does this in, in an incredibly kind of clear uh, and um, and often very witty prose, and I I think it, it kind of moves very very easily. And so I was just I was thinking, you know, and and I'd be curious for for you know to the both of you, like, you know, does this uh, change the way? Does an attention to stage directions? I mean, I think when when we study directing, uh, stage directions become a kind of critical part of our reading work. But but for other kinds of Play reading, whether it's textual analysis or dramaturgy, or you know, it 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 can become a kind of side side piece. And um, Rowan talks about, I think it's Uta Hagen who specifically is like ignore the stage directions, like pay no <laughs> attention to that that meddlesome playwright behind the curtain, right? You know, like make your own choices. And so I'm just wondering. You know, uh, you know what what you both thought is, you know, in terms of like a scholarly approach, like how how might we incorporate or or read plays differently in in light of what Rowan's proposing here?
2: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll hop in here. I mean, my sense is that you know plays are ultimately ultimately examples of literature, and this might be controversial, but I I tend to think of of, of a play as a text that is meant to be read, um, and then it also has a life, you know, in, in large part because. We encounter plays as written documents, <laughs> right? You know, first and foremost, uh, and it's for that reason I've always had a fascination with, uh, with the long. Uh, stage you know, stage directions and stage descriptions of someone like an O'Neill and Huey, which is cited in this uh, article, or uh, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' Neighbors, you know, which has these stage directions which are ultimately unstageable, uh, but offer a sense of the mood and the environment of the world. Uh, and, you know, whether you're talking about Susan Laurie Parks' spells or the work of Brandon, uh, you know, there is a the depth, you know, that's invited in terms of getting a sense of the larger world that is trying to be recreated on stage, but certainly should be imagined within the mind of the reader. Uh, and any chance to actually ex- think of the expanded capacities of drama and theater as literature with a stageable potential uh, can be realized through these uh, very dynamic stage directions.
0: Yeah, I, I I think I had a similar reaction to Harvey, which was that it, the article points at, I think, assumptions that I had about reading plays. Um, she acknowledges the same kind of argument that I I think it just sort of got buried in my brain in graduate school at some time but i didn't know where to where it came from which was that these super long and super elaborate stage directions in a play like uh or in in plays by eugene o'neill that these are meant for the person reading the play you know and that person might be a someone reading it for pleasure in a class it might be the actor performing the role who's going to take interpretive strategies from it or not same with directors um but that there's this idea that the Elaborate and beautifully constructed stage directions are a, a sort of facet of the play which is um belongs to their status as literature, as Harvey said as a sort of readable thing and so I have always you know identified those things with um the you know a publishing phenomenon and she talks about um uh, Rowan talks about how. You know, an increase in play publishing in the 20th century is thought of as being a sort of, you know, dynamic for readers. A similar thing happened in, in France in the 18th century where um, plays were published. And the idea was that spectators who had seen the play could then take the copy home and enjoy it again and 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 that sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, I, I enjoy the way Rowan points us at the way that these stage these bits of text are also um, determinants in a certain way of any eventual performance of the play. However, another sort of idea that was stuck in my head from graduate school, and I cannot source it, is that you don't necessarily know when you read a a published edition, say, of O'Neill or Rule even, was this text that was available in early drafts of the play when it was in development and that actors read and from the originary moment of authorial creation was thought of as as informing their performance, or were they in some cases, after the fact, descriptions of choices that actors made that inspired the playwright, who then in later drafts of the play, you know, added this commentary in that sort of is informed by other sources um, or are they things that the playwright wrote conscious of the reading public and not necessarily connected to um, uh, the, any particular production at all. So I thought her article did a great job of kind of adumbrating the different purposes that we might um, uh, see in those texts. Um, But uh, I had other questions, you know, I I think the article, which I liked a lot, I, I still felt as though I was, A little bit unsure about how affect theory helped, you know, solve problems or was a super productive strategy for interpreting what these what these texts do. Um, Well, I I think, can I just jump in
1: with that? Because um, so, you know. Not for nothing, but I am on record as challenging this idea of plays as literature. So um, yes. I will I will take it up here because I think it ties into what what panel is getting at, and then I'll I'll, I'll let panel go back. I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I, I think I'm glad you interrupt. I think the thing that, that that the plays as literature and that the question of affect theory is meant to answer is that um, and and what Rowan draws attention to is that the is that the stage directions are not simply there uh, to form an idea of a a potential or a mythical production in the mind of the reader, but are tied to real bodies in time and history and space. And I think that where affect theory becomes helpful is making a distinction between or among the various roles that stage directions can play, and that's not to say that some don't fulfill exactly what Harvey is talking about in terms of a kind of literary function, but that what Rowan, it seems to me, is most interested in is locating those that are affective stage directions that have to do with how people feel, what a sensual experience is in in the theater space, both as a potential audience member, but also as a creator, and that that gives us a different kind of valence on how these particular types of writing or, you know, chunks of prose, which, you know, in the one she cites often sort of tend toward more of the poetic than the prosaic, um, uh, operate, right? And I, I just sort of draw it. To, I mean, I thought one of the key ideas in the, in the piece was where she talked about affective stage directions as being those that remind us about, um, like, bodies' historicities and the idea that different bodies as identity markers acquire different meanings in different places and times.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's a it's a viable interpretation and I think a strong, compelling argument. I think what I what I meant by my resistance to the affect theory, and I think probably this comes from a kind of latent formalist tendency in my own thinking, um, which is that. I was skeptical on the idea that you could identify certain stage directions, which I think she could just call ambiguous as opposed to affective and identify them in a special category on the basis of the ability of affect theory to sort of give us an interpretive framework. This is another way of saying that what she says is true of you know, affective stage directions of the stage direction, for example, where Sarah rule explicates or points out that um, if this is a Victorian woman having the first orgasm of her life, remember that she's not going to behave in a way that's informed by 20th century, you know, romantic comedies or pornography, that it's going to, the, the actor needs to make a choice that is uh, informed that to me, my, to, that to my mind is, you know, an instance, a category of kind of radical, uh, indeterminacy or or ambiguity in stage directions that you can actually apply throughout the entire play script. Um, and I don't mean to be too clever here, but you know she sort of compares this this type of stage direction to things that are more straightforward, uh, easy to interpret like uh, he exits, for example, or you know, sort of more mundane and less complicated or difficult stage directions. But I think that you could actually say that there's the dynamics of, being uncertain about how the cultural codes that the actor exists in can translate back through time or space or into another situation, that that's actually true of dialogue, that, that you could argue that that fundamental state of affairs is true of every word in a play script, not just a certain category of tough stage directions.
1: I, I, I take your point. I think, I think the question for me is uh, is not, you know, whether it can be applied like that. It's like, what is, what do, what is to be gained by thinking of it um, in, in, the, in the realm of affect theory? And I think, I think Rowan makes a good case for that it opens up different kinds of questions and different ways of thinking about this role of these indeterminate stage directions. And I, I, I mean, I, I imagine, I think this is, I think she says it's part of a larger work. I, I'm kind of curious how this sits in a, in a more expansive consideration of that particular type of writing. Um, but for me, it became, it. Be, I, I thought it was useful in the way in which she makes a distinction between, like, he exits and other yes. kinds of bodily movement and, um, and gesture uh, that isn't always about what is externally apprehendable within the context of the play. I mean, I think where affect theory becomes really helpful is in understanding not just what the audience sees or what is presented, but also how... How the ideas and the and the feelings and sensations of the performers and and the creative team play into this, and that seems like it has tremendous value in talking about a whole range of different works, particularly those that come out of right marginalized or unrepresented communities, uh, and gives us a different perspective on how to understand and rethink some you know some of even the most sort of banal stage directions.
2: Yeah, but, but my sense of it is that what she's doing here is that it's. It's really a form of author theory, right? Where, where what she wants to do is she wants to maintain the presence uh, and the authority of the playwright in the midst of production, uh, so that you know, uh, you know, whether or not it's stageable, you know, the voice the playwright looms large and has to be dealt with, but also has to be engaged in a manner that's not determinant, right? Where people can say, "Hey, this is what he or she or they meant." Uh, Like, it remains this ongoing conversation, whether it's the work of Rule or Jacob Jenkins or Parks, among others. Uh, And and, and that's where I see the intervention uh, occurring here within this essay.
0: Well, we all, I think, enjoyed uh, Bess Ronan's article, and and you should put it on your syllabi and and assign it to your students. It it definitely provokes some really interesting conversations. Um, We also read Noe Montez's State of the Field Address for the Symposium of Doctoral Programs in Theater and Performance Studies. We wanted to dedicate some time in this episode, as we tend to every year, to looking at the current job market. Noe's article in published in HowlRound, and we'll put the link on the website, is I think just by far his most thorough um, collection and analysis of an ongoing research project into the field and its job market dynamics. There's a lot in here to talk about. Harvey, um, were there sort of broad um, phenomena in there that you thought were interesting? Were there pr- specific data points that... Um, spoke to you that you wanted to bring up?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Just as a bit of backdrop, uh, what Noe Montez does, and he's been doing this for a few years now, is to gather data uh, reflecting uh, both the state of the job market, but also the graduation rates of uh, doctoral programs within the United States primarily. And you know that was motivated by Uh, Noe reflecting upon the fact that it took him uh, three years uh, to secure a tenure-track job and then more recently him becoming the uh, director of graduate studies at Tufts University and therefore on a very immediate day-to-day basis uh, facing the realities of the job market as he advises and counsels students who are looking to obtain jobs. Uh, and what's extraordinary here, and, and for those, um, you know, who have missed the chance to read it, you can actually see Noe, <laughs> you know, present this, uh, you know, thanks to a HowlRound uh, recording of the session that occurred uh, at the convening that he hosted at Tufts University. Uh, he, he, pre- he, pre- he presents the numbers. Uh, he reveals the fact that, um, you know, looking at the years 20, 2011 to 2017, and tracks, you know, where PhD students, you know, are, where they went after graduating, Uh, He reveals the fact that about a third of them um, uh, or slightly more than that, 38% ended up in tenure-track jobs, uh, 25% uh, in contingent uh, labor as adjuncts, uh, and then the rest in other jobs or have left the academy. Uh, Looking at sort of recent job trends, he notes that about 80% of jobs every year tend to uh, feature uh, individuals whose work, uh, or, or tend to lead to the hiring of individuals whose work uh, focuses on the 19th century or later. Right? Um, you know, and you know, what seems quite striking to me uh, is that approximately 30% of the jobs every year are looking for people who work in a sort of racially specific area, and then 60% of jobs are minoritarian or non-Western. Uh, so it's just. He gives us the numbers to allow us to assess what the field is. Uh, What are your thoughts on this piece, uh, panel, Sarah? Yeah, there's a couple
0: of points that I thought were particularly striking. The, the the stats that you report, Harvey, I think were sort of the headline one. You know, He looks at six years of people who got PhDs in our field, and he tracked them down with his team so that there's only 2% they couldn't find. And 38% of those people are in tenure-track jobs now. And I think that's the – there's a lot of sort of um, – you know, follow-up discussion you can have about the quality of different contingent positions, the sa- the satisfaction that people might feel leaving academia, which is a viable option for a lot of people. But 38 percent, it's a pretty grim number. I don't think it's as bad as other fields, but that's the reality. And it's a, you know, this is a very well put together report. Um, the There's one thing that I thought was interesting, and that's the, the you know, the 10 percent number of uh, hired candidates specializing in the 19th century. So, you know, being an 18th century scholar, talking to a lot of uh, other theater historians, it's just, you know, it's a it's a constant lament that the field has basically abandoned theater history to other disciplines. Um, and I think it's fair to say on the basis of this that there are many theater historians among us who study periods you know, earlier than the 19th century and the 19th century, by the way, is a legitimate historical field as is the 20th century. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's a kind of like increasing preference or, or I don't know the lament, uh, Continually, uh, sort of recenters itself on why don't we study more of older periods. But the truth is that, you know, if you're looking at 17th and 18th century France and its theater, the most work is being done by people trained in French departments. And I think a similar dynamic is happening across the board. I think that's too bad. But something that I wanted to point out about that number is that I'm not sure that it reflects demand so much as supply. In other words, At that part of the article, there's a shift in the methodology that Noe doesn't name, where he goes from analyzing the terms that are in listings for jobs. You know, we want a theater historian. We want a director. We want someone who does non-Western, et cetera. He shifts from that to reporting what percentage of the people who got the jobs, the tenure-track jobs, ground their research in this or that or the other field. So I just wanted to say that the fact that 90% of the field's does its research on the 19th century or later does not necessarily mean that that's what is sought in jobs. I think that might be how people are choosing their topics and being trained. Does that make sense? In other words, I think that the presentism, et cetera, et cetera, might not be a result of Everyone feeling like they only want to hire people who who teach and research on those topics, but that job uh, PhDs and PhD uh, PhD students and PhD programs are training themselves in uh, increasingly in more recent time periods.
1: Well, so this brings up a really interesting question because I was thinking about this from the perspective of undergraduate education, and and what you're talking about, panel, actually. Uh, as I'm sort of thinking about it, responding to it, you know, raises an interesting question for me that I don't, I don't think is possible to get at here. But this question of what, who majors in theater or who seeks out robust theater education as an undergraduate student. And, what I would say is it's, it's typically people who come into it through production, right? So people who want to be actors or designers or, you know, maybe directors. Um, but I think acting is overwhelmingly, you know, I, I call it the gateway drug. Um, and it seems to me that people who are thinking about um, more historical, you know, a more varied historical time periods, right? Like those people are getting their degrees in French, as undergraduates, or they're getting their degrees in English literature where they're studying the medieval period and early modern drama, um, or they're in other kinds of language departments. And so their undergraduate training is in um, language and literatures. And then when they look at graduate programs, even if they're very interested in drama, they're pursuing it through the mechanisms or through the training that is most familiar to them from their undergraduate faculty. So for example, at a place like Bowdoin College, we've got drama happening all over the place. Um, a very small amount of it is actually in the theater and dance department. Um, We've got, you know, really active colleagues in English, multiple classes taught there. And this also might account for the presentism of people who are particularly interested in theater because, of course, what's drawing people to production is new work, what they're seeing on stages now, what they feel is accessible. And then we get into the whole, like, well, what can you convincingly play? And so we get an overwhelming body of performance literature that is geared towards 20th century or later um, that it that maps onto whomever the students are in a given program so I I'm just again I I'm just really I, th- I think that part of this issue of of who studies what when also then roots in the, in the undergraduate experience
2: right I mean, but but my my sense is that there's sort of a history problem or a bias within theater studies uh, I've, I've had way too many conversations with people who our 19th century uh, specialists, uh, and they claim the mantle of being, you know, a rigorous, path-breaking, you know, field-charging uh, historian, and and then are dismissive of the work of the 20th century. And what we need to do is we need to acknowledge the fact that. Uh, the 19th century wasn't that long ago, <laughs> right? You know, so let's not overly, you know, pat ourselves in the back for working 19th century. Let's actually urge more people to go back in time, you know, rather than to pretend uh, that sort of theater began uh, in 1850.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's fine, and I really am I'm cognizant of you know disrespecting people who work on the 20th century or 19th century and saying you're not real historians because they are, they absolutely are, and you could make the argument that these are. You know, it's the study of modernity, which is um, urgent that we understand. I think it's the lack of you know consistent training within our field of classicists, me- medievalists, etc. It's I think it's lamentable, but I also think that there are good reasons for it, like the ones that Sarah points out. You know, it's if, if we're going to specialize as a discipline in certain things, it's very difficult to encompass the entire world and all of history within the training we offer. And you can make the argument that it's good for um, historians of medieval Germany to be trained in German departments. Although, I, I, think that, I think that makes
2: sense. Although the question that I have is that, like when you sort of combined the uh, the 90% or 85 plus percent of jobs looking for people who are working in the 19th century and later, you know, with the fact that 60% of jobs are looking for a person who uh, is interested in minoritarian slash non-Western theater, uh, you know, how does that reality of the job market, you know, wanting to diversify um, the research specialties and, you know, in terms of around race and ethnicity, for example, and non-Western align with the practices that exist within current graduate programs?
0: Let me pivot here a little bit and say that I think that 60 percent number is also of the type that it's the method which counts the people who got the jobs Sixty percent of them specialized in this or that subject matter. There's no doubt that there's high demand for non-Western and minoritarian research specialties across the field. Um, but on the to return to the question of history one more time, I think the thing that would maybe clear up whether or not it's a good idea to study in an to specialize in an older historical period uh, would be to look at the people who didn't get the tenure track job and say, is it that? Is it that the proportion of specialty uh, in an older historical period is higher among people who didn't get the tenure track job? In other words, that would if that's the case, then that would suggest there's not that much demand for historians as opposed to there's just not that much supply of them. Um, and I, you know, for my own job market experience, which, which was anecdotal, I was studying 18th century France. I had somebody on a job committee for a job I interviewed for tell me that I must feel like the ugly girl at prom, quote unquote, because no one, because according to this person's perspective, uh, it must be very hard to sell yourself as an 18th century France France specialist because no one's particularly interested in that. An unfortunate turn of phrase on this person's part. Um, But I'm not sure that that's true because I think I got some good interest in a rough job market year, partly because I was one of the few people who could say, yeah, I can teach the early modern period. I'm a historian. So you know, there's, there's a lot that's interesting in here. Let, let, let me shift if I can the topic to, um, the, the structural issue, the sort of the fact that while the field generates, I think it's like 80 to 90 PhDs per year, there are pretty much, you know, less than half that number of jobs in an average year. Um, one thing Noe doesn't talk about in this paper is what should be done about that. He does say that, that, you know candidates should be trained in production there's a lot more there's a lot of these jobs where people are expected to direct in the season um uh you can see what's needed but training people up within these programs to be more attractive within the market doesn't solve the structural issue of there being way more uh phd degree holders than there are tenure track jobs
1: well interestingly i mean he he does note that that the number of phd's was at its historical lowest for for you know the time period he's talking about in in 2017 um that it hit this kind of spike in 2013 which makes sense because you've got a bunch of people finishing who would have enrolled right around 2007 and particularly i would think around the 2008 financial crisis right who either stayed uh, or were in a program at that moment right so either started a program because of other limited job opportunities or stayed in a program longer because of limited job opportunities and then and then 2013 is a is a kind of moment where the you know the economy starts to come back and so a bunch of people then you know re-enter the market so there's this really pretty significant bump that year, and then we go back to more historic you know levels but 2017 is is really significantly lower um, than others you know one of the other so one of the things that that I think noe does talk a little bit about and has certainly been a conversation is the the need to create more robust job opportunities and training for options beyond academia, like recognizing that a certain number, you know, there there are a limited number of jobs in any year and that we are producing more PhDs than we are producing jobs. And NOAA also does a really nice job of accounting for, for lateral shifts. Um, uh, so, you know, assistant professors who move sideways um, or move from assistant professor to assistant professor gig as opposed to, you know, openings for, for truly new PhDs. Um, But then the other part of this, and and that's been an ongoing conversation and and part of working groups through Atha and Aster and, um, you know, Heather Nathan's um, back with Aster several years ago really started a lot of these conversations of, you know, graduate, you know, paradigm, new paradigms in graduate education. Um, But the other uh, obvious pressure here is that... um, you know I think there's there's a lot of indications that we are entering another period of economic instability and um and that the the markets particularly in the United States you know may be overextended and that that's gonna you know have economic realities and and how budgets function is sometimes directly tied to graduate enrollments so so thinking about the balance of how many graduate students you enroll and and accept relative to the job market, you know, should all the programs, you know, there's always this like, well, should all these programs exist? It's like, you know, who wants to be the person to give up their doctoral program? I mean, so there are some, there, you know, I do think like the next, you know, two to five years are going to be pretty dicey in this, in this regard.
2: Wait, so so I have a question. So uh, like, uh, let's imagine that a prospective applicant to a PhD program um, approaches one of us, right, and says to us, "You know, I'm interested in writing a dissertation, pursuing research on 18th century English theater, uh, with the aim of teaching at a prominent major research university. Uh, like, what? How are we supposed to use Noe's uh, data? Like, because there's a way in which looking at it." Uh, you know, my gut feeling would, would be to say, well, the odds are highly stacked against you, uh, that it's not even a one in 10 chance that you'll get the job. Um, you know, but I I, I want to find hope. <laughs> I want yeah. there to be hope. So well, what do we say to this person? Well, I think you do say the odds are stacked against you,
0: but I think the odds are not. I mean, if you break it down in terms of, you know, how many lateral moves there were, et cetera, et cetera on a given year, yeah, that number can fall to 10%, but the big number is the one I think you cited, Harvey, which would suggest 40%, 38% in the last half decade have gotten the tenure track job. That's a decent chance, but you need to be cognizant of, um, the fact that you may end up in another career. That's not necessarily bad. It's, and it's not necessarily bad to spend your twenties or your early thirties, um, studying and and reading and, and doing research. Um, I'd say one thing is that there's a very interesting table at the in the last section of this essay, which is every program in the field, and with the 633 people that Noe and his team tracked, um, what percentage of people who came out of that program are in tenure track, contingent, outside academia, independent scholar, etc., you can see which of those programs in the last five years has put a higher percentage of people into tenure-track jobs, and it's not always the ones that you would think. Um, so I think you can look at that and say, maybe don't have your heart set on getting a job at an R1. Maybe think about some of these state schools that actually are putting people into tenure-track jobs, I presume, in smaller schools and, and regional universities. Um, I guess that's what I would say. Look, I mean, the data can give you a guide in terms of which of the programs are placing people at a, at a high rate.
1: It's also worth looking at the percentage within those programs, mm-hmm. right? Like, so, I mean, I, and again, you know, this is also going to depend on, on the student, right? Like, you know, are you independently wealthy? You know, do you need to, you know, can you afford to live on grad student wages for, you know? Yeah. Four to six yeah. years, okay. Well, you know, here are some good programs. This could be an interesting way to spend your twenties. You know, do you have children? Are you responsible for aging parents? Do you already have debt from under your undergraduate studies? Like, that's a very different yeah. kind of conversation. And and I don't know that we can extrapolate, you know, to 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 anyone. But I think I think you know, as I advise and talk to undergraduate students, um, I think making them aware of the realities of you know, what they're, what they're likely to, to pursue, how they are likely to be read in the market at this moment. Right. Knowing that, you know, by the time one of my, you know, juniors or seniors gets a degree and, and hits the market, things are going to be very different. Um, You know, hopefully for the better. Um, But, but, but I think, you know, taking a look at like, okay, well, where are you going to get, you know, the best training, where are you going to get, you know, mentorship, you know, who's, you know, who's, who's helping folks get into certain, you know kinds of spaces. I think I think that's really important. Yeah.
0: So we there's more to say on this. We didn't really talk about this year's market, which Noe in a recent tweet acknowledged is actually a pretty bad year, yeah. uh, down about twenty five percent in terms of job listings. Um, but we do need to move on to our our, our third topic. Um, so I wanted to talk about the prospect of converting. A conference, a major conference in our field, to a digital model. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it's not particularly important which of the professional associations would do this. And perhaps for for uh, to to make the conversation more abstract, it's better not to identify one. But Aster's on my mind, partly because Astor's now fa- well, it, yeah. Like, well, it's, but take credit panel. The-
1: you had this idea before before <laughs> the true. latest news from Aster came is true. out. So that just is just true. for it's you true. know, I'll do props yeah. for prescience on. Uh, Panel camps part. Yes, well, and and the reasons for this
0: actually don't have to do with the um, the labor dynamics, though it's 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 related in a certain way. Um, To my mind, the reason to do this would be for two uh, would be twofold. One is economic, and one is ecological. Um, I think that the conferences that we um, uh, participate in are rather expensive. I think there's good reasons for why they're expensive. I don't think it's I don't think I, I, I wouldn't attribute, attribute bad motives to anyone in the, in the, you know, who's planning the conferences or r- running them, but these things are just expensive. The, to have hotels that are big enough for our community – means more expensive hotels um the travel is expensive it's stuff that you know even someone like me who's at a research first institution i have dedicated money every year for travel and i have research budget that i can dedicate to going to conferences it's an extremely expensive thing to go to two conferences a year um the the hotels are expensive the registration fees are expensive everything it's a ton of money and that excludes or puts pressure to take debt on, um, uh, for people who don't have the resources that I have available. And I just don't think that the fundamental function of these functions or the fundamental function of these conferences, which to my mind is to promulgate and organize scholarly communication that you need to spend that much money to do it. I think that, um, so that's one motive. Um, and the other is ecological and it just has to do with jet fuel. Um, jet fuel is, thought to contribute about four to five percent of carbon use Um, uh, besides the planes that we're all hopping on to go to these things all over the country and sometimes in other parts of the world um, there's the car rides the train rides the bus rides Um, it's a lot of of carbon fuel that we're using to transport our big, dumb bodies to some city to sit in a room and watch a slideshow that could be communicated in other ways. So, you know, I'm not saying that Aster should do this this year. It's way too late in the planning, but I would be really interested in attempting an, an online remote conference meeting. Um, I think Asteroid would also be a good candidate part, partly because the working session model, I think lends itself to um, video chat applications like Google Hangout, which we're using to record this podcast right now, or GoToMeeting, um, which is, I think, more stable and higher quality. You could easily get 10 to 12 people in one of those calls um, and have really interesting, really good conversations with each other with the, the, the awards can all be um, organized and, and delivered by remote um, plenaries and large concurrent sessions can be live streamed. This technology is pretty well available and already being used in some cases to, uh, uh, to, to disseminate talks and Obviously, there are lots of things that would be lost if we weren't all hanging out in a hotel together, and those things are, I think, some of them are obvious and some of them are less obvious. But to my mind, the cost is significant enough that um, I think we should be talking seriously about converting to this model in the 21st century. So what do you guys think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense in that many of us belong to multiple associations, and it's a challenge to... Be present in, in, in an annual at an annual level, at least, uh, you, know, f- you know, to the many to many organizations uh, that w- to which we belong. So, any opportunity for us to sort of save resources and yet still come together and convene, I think, is helpful and important. And the reality is, we spend more time online doing sort of virtual conversations and vicarious communities uh, being recreated through uh, technology. Uh, that it's not that surprising or or shocking to imagine that we would have e- events or even conferences that could occur. Um, virtually
1: so I, I I would sign on for everything you're saying here panel and yet um, <laughs> I, I can think of a a couple of uh, a, a couple of potential major stumbling blocks one is that um, you know as, as, as someone who does a fair amount of virtual kinds of stuff uh, you know I think many of us have had the experience if you've ever sat through a webinar <laughs> um the 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 temptation to do other things, and and the lack of, of really present attention, and 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 this is true when we're sitting in meetings anyway, and right, I, I always think it's hilarious when people like want to you know bash on the students for checking you know Facebook on their laptops, right? Because if you go to a faculty meeting, you know half the people there are like doing to do lists or you know checking Twitter on their phones, um, so I do worry that like concentrated attention will, will, will dissipate. Although I kind of like this idea of a, of a flipped conference. I also really worry that the, the intangibles that you allude to, one of which of course is networking and being able to have kind of off the record in-person contact with, you know, like site reference conversation about job market, um, that, that that will still be desirable and so there will be like optional get-togethers um, for people who really want to and can afford to do it. And and that, that then creates basically like a bifurcation in, in in a scholarly community, right? Where some people are getting together um, around, around this, this hub. Um, something that PSI did a few years ago at the Fluid States conference, right, was to take a globally distributed conference and have different sites, um, so that it localized participation, and then created a whole bunch of virtual, me- you know, uh, mechanisms for virtual participation, readings, reports, and things like that. And and some of it was was really helpful, but but uh, as a as a PSI member, I did also. You know, uh, I had a profound, you know, FOMO experience with that, right? Like I was constantly, I just, I'd missed it. Um, and I do worry about uh, about those of us um, for whom uh, for whom our scholarly uh, persona, our reputations, our work is is it happens in live interactions. You know, like there are some speakers who. I can read the I can read the the, the the text just fine. I'm thinking of like Andrew Sofer, right? But I would so much rather see him present in a live space than watch a video of him or you know and sit so, and so that, that would be my only my only hesitation. But you know, I don't think anyone can argue the economics or the ecology. And so what we might end up doing or needing to do is move to a lot more of these kind of, you know, hybrid models. Um or, and or think about like regional events, um, you know, that people can drive to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a significant point. There, there's no doubt that something would be lost. I think about um, Atha in Boston, where I didn't know that John Amy, uh, who came to our live recording and was a professor at Brown when I was a graduate student, I didn't know that I would see him there. And I ended up you know, at the bar talking to him, and besides just the pleasure of catching up and seeing someone who's important to you in the field and in your career, uh, we ended up having a conversation about a course, a seminar that he took with Richard Schechner at Tulane that actually pertains to my research, like knowing what, getting to learn from him for five minutes, what um, was going on in that, in those seminars, that is something that's been sticking in my head that I'm going to be writing about at some point, and that type of uh, serendipitous, accidental face-to-face encounter. Yes, you're drinking, you know, a sixteen-dollar martini, and uh, <laughs> and the the resource expenditure is just all out of whack with the the really important thing about the conference, um, you know. Uh, but that it would be tough to lose that. I just think that the way we spend time and resources on these things has gotten a little bit out of control and it's like climate change is a massive massive problem and it's very easy to rationalize and say well it's you know it would be an insignificant change if just one of these conferences was done this way but it could create a model that could then be replicated by others and could help us survive a a future in which we cannot spend these resources the way we the way we have been Um,
2: but there is a way in which you can still have segments or sections of a conference appear online you know it's, it's like, you know, within a world in which we're trying to decide you know are we going to atha ASTR PSI uh, IFTR MATC comparative drama and the list goes on and acknowledging the fact that maybe at best we'll, we will go to three of them right uh, Having some mechanism that allows you to be engaged with the conversation that's occurring on-site in real time can be helpful. Uh, Even if you're losing some of those accidental uh, encounters, you're still receiving and learning and benefiting from the scholarship of your peers. Uh, So maybe that's the solution is to create some sort of window into the conference that has a virtual dimension uh, for those who are unable to to, to, to attend. Um, And then maybe we could pilot a conference via one tap you know, the virtual one tap conference. What do you think?
1: I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm totally down for that. We should all, Let's we're all going to need to brush up on our acting for the camera skills. That's all I can say it's like, everybody <laughs> can make a cool going studio. have to figure out how to use, how to use a microphone uh, and start thinking about, you know, camera and framing and composition. So, you know, we make friends with that. your cinema studies
0: folks soon. Indeed. Indeed. Now, we have to wrap this up. Sarah, I know you have to go to a meeting. Uh, Sarah, do you want to hit us with your draft real quick before you have to log off?
1: I I am. Yeah. So uh, what I will say is this is is like a totally self-interested, no one will care but me, um, but this is a, 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 a shout out to my son Diego, who is studying in Berlin this year and is proudly wearing the On Tap podcast T-shirt um, around Diego. around around town. So I've been you know thinking about him and missing him a lot. Um, but my second one, and actually, I'll I'll, I'll since I, I have to be brief, I'll submit this as a draft. But I'd like us to follow up on it in a future podcast episode. Which is um, uh, Laura Levin and Marley Schweitzer's amazing new edited collection, uh, uh, Performance Studies in Canada, and it's it's gotten um, uh, you know I'm still working my way through it, but I think it's a an incredibly important and beautiful book um, with some of the foremost scholars in in the field, but making a really important intervention in, in decolonizing and, and attention to Indigenous voices in a a really uh, critical self-reflection on the field of performance studies in that context. Um, there's a great review from Tracy C. Davis in I think it's the most recent issue of TDR. Um, and I saw that Jen Harvey also just published um, a review of the book. So I highly recommend it. I think it's a really important book and hopefully one that we can you know, pick up and discuss at, at length in a future episode. All right,
0: thank you, Sarah. Harvey, what do you got?
2: Yeah, uh, for me, my uh, oh, tap. Uh, draft has to do with uh, this Laguna Beach workshop that I had on mentorship and being assistant and associate professor uh, going up to the next level. And what became clear in that conversation was that what people need to know was how do you say no? Um, I mean, obviously, there are articles that exist out uh, in the world in terms of the need to say no in terms of to advance one's career to create opportunities for others. But it's one thing for people abstractly to say. You know what you need to say no more often. You know, and it's a different thing for a person to actually have to face someone, look them in the eye, and say no. You know, so how do you tell, you know, your advisor, your mentor, your department chair, no to service? You know, how do you tell, you know, that sort of eager-eyed graduate student who wants you to serve as the primary advisor on a dissertation or as a second member of committee, no? So what we did was we spent uh, some time actually doing. Um, uh, scenarios where we've role-played actually practicing saying no. And I realized that that is what's needed within the field more and more, you know, sort of hands-on exercises in which we can actually give people the language to say no, as opposed to just telling people abstractly to say no.
0: That's, uh, that's good. That's something that I need to learn as well. Although I've started to say no, uh, you know, Robin Bernstein has the advice of saying not at this time, you know, just uh, this year I'm overbooked and, and there has been good, um, coaching on this problem but I I agree with you it's it's fine to say no in the abstract but then depending on who's asking you depending on what it is it can be super tough even when you know it's a bad idea My draft this month uh, is just a recommendation for a short film that I saw over the weekend. Um, It's called The Passage, and it is the creation of um, a performer, actor, clown named Philip Burgers, who also goes by the stage name Dr. Brown. Um, So this came across my Twitter feed. It's... um, directed by Kito uh, Sakurai really features Phil Burgers who's just this amazing performer in a, in a sort of clown tradition um, it's hard to describe the piece it's kind of a modern silent film in that um, he doesn't speak and all the language spoken in the film is in non-English languages um, but he's a Burgers is a phenomenal performer and he was uh, trained by the the famous French clown Philippe uh, Gallier um, and you can see this online if you google the passage Phil Burgers you can you you can check it out it's 22 minutes and, and definitely worth a, a watch harvey thank you sarah in absentia thank you and listeners thank you guys for for downloading and streaming um have a great november and um we'll we'll hit you with another podcast very soon on Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.